Okay, I'm getting to the age when it's good to be anywhere this morning, so. <laughs> I'm going to take you today to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I always think of the New Testament, whenever I turn to Ephesians, I tend to say this, I think of the New Testament in this way, that the many chapters of the New Testament are like a series of mountain peaks, look across a great mountain range, which is the New Testament, and all these mountain peaks. But there are three peaks that I think stand higher than any others, and that's uh, Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 5, and Ephesians 1. The reason I say that is because I think just about all Christian truth is contained in those three chapters. So if you ever go off to the mythical uh, desert island, that's the three chapters you need to take with you. You can take nothing else. All right, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 8, and Ephesians 1. Which is Mount Everest? In my opinion, it's Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read to you uh, a passage of Scripture that has lived with me for decades and which I try to make something that's at the very kind of core and fiber of my being, really. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times would have reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ." Now, we are living in, I think, about the most scary time. I think it is the most scary time that I've lived through the whole of my life. And, uh, you know, you hardly need me to, to reel it off, but just to remind you of a few things. There's climate change on the one hand. We're kind of burning up in parts of Australia and uh, America and being flooded out in parts of Asia. We have wars uh, in Ukraine and Russia, we know too, so well of that conflict. I think we can very easily get used to that conflict just being ongoing. It actually brings us every day to the brink of nuclear war, uh, if we really think about what's involved in that. There's rumors of wars. I think of what's happening between China and Taiwan. I think of uh, North Korea uh, launching its ballistic missiles to test them to see if they could reach America. Uh, We have all these things going on at the present time. We've had a pandemic, which has kind of altered our lives permanently uh, in some ways. And now we're in total moral confusion so that we have politicians that don't know who's a man and who's a woman. (laughs) And amidst all this confusion, where there is so much kind of concern for people's identity, what I want to underline to you this morning is that as believers, our basic identity is who we are in Christ. And a passage that speaks to this most wonderfully is this passage in Ephesians chapter 1. So I'm going to take you through this passage this morning and really underline to you all that we are in Jesus Christ. 
Now, as Paul uh, comes to write this passage, he does what is typical for Paul, and he begins with a general statement, and then having made that general statement, he unpacks the details of that statement. So, his general statement is in verse 3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul begins this passage with an explosion of praise. Uh, I don't want to alarm an English congregation, but really, I ought to shout out, praise be, because that's what uh, Paul is really speaking of here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's probably best to work the verse backwards, because you'll see there that at the end of the verse, it says, we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this passage is essentially about who and what we are in Christ. Paul's favorite expression for the Christian believer was a person who is in Christ. We're united to Christ. We're baptized into Christ. We belong to Christ. We're joined to Christ. So as believers, what is true for Jesus Christ is true for us. And so Jesus died and we die and Jesus rose again. And in Christ we rise again and Jesus has a new body and we will have a new body. All that's true for Jesus is true for us because we're in Christ, we're joined to Christ. And that's our essential uh, expression of who we are at the present time. So this passage is all about what it means to be in Christ. Go back in the verse and it says we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because we're in Christ, all the spiritual blessings are ours. Please note, it does not say that we have every material blessing. Some people have an idea that you join Christianity to get material blessings. And sometimes there is an overflow of material blessings, but that's not the essential gospel. You will never have every material blessing, but we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then you go back in the verse again, and it tells us about our citizenship that uh, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with <coughs> every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the heavenly realm refers to our basic citizenship. Now, the reality is that you and I straddle two realms at the present time. We straddle a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. Let me illustrate this to you. Let's bring it down to kind of what we can understand day to day. It's possible, even in this life, in an earthly way, to straddle two realms. So, in my pocket, I produce a passport. From my pocket, I produce a passport. And this passport contains a picture of me. Uh, and In fact, this was taken during a stretch of time I was doing in, in Pentonville Prison, because you can <laughs> see <it. coughs> But, what, what this... What this passport tells you with my photograph is that I'm a British citizen. That is the realm I belong to. Right? I'm British. I'm a British citizen. I belong to the realm of Great Britain. But let's suppose I go off to see Paul and Charlotte in, uh, in France. And while I'm in France, I'm in another realm. I'm in the realm of France. And while I'm in the realm of France, what I'm conscious of most is in fact France, because that's what I see around me. I see the French countryside, I drink the French wine, I eat the French food, I hear the French language. And so though I am from the British realm, actually what I'm more conscious of is the realm of France. 
If, however, I got into trouble in France, and let's say I got arrested by the police and put in prison for some reason, and they took another photograph of me there in France, if I was, uh, if I was there and I was in trouble, what would I do? Well, I would appeal to the realm to which I really belong. I would appeal to the, to the realm of Great Britain, say, I need help, or I'm in trouble in France. And so I'd be straddling two realms, more conscious of the realm of France, but actually really recognizing that the realm to which I actually belong is the realm of Great Britain. Now, it's similar for us as Christians. We straddle two realms, a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. And you and I are more conscious of the earthly realm because that's what we visibly see. And so all around us, we see uh, signs of our realm. We see other British people. Uh, we see our home. We see the mortgage we're trying to pay or the rent we're trying to pay. We see our job and our work colleagues. All around us are signs of the earthly realm to which we belong. But my friends, that is not where we really belong. Because in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, it says our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to the heavenly realm. And you've got your passport, in a spiritual sense, doesn't, doesn't say earthly realm, it says heavenly realm. And Paul is saying here that we are citizens of a heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's the general statement that he makes. Now, Having made that statement, it's not unreasonable to ask, well, what are these spiritual blessings? If we have every spiritual blessing, what are these spiritual blessings? And that's what Paul goes on to show us here in the rest of the verses in this passage. So let me run these past you. So in verse 4, we see that the first spiritual blessing he mentions is this, for he chose us in him, he chose us in Christ, so it's all about being in Christ before the creation of of the world. This verse is unique in telling you what God was doing before he created anything. You see, God lived for eternity, and eternity is a very long time. So what was God doing? All right, this verse tells you what God was doing. He was thinking about you. Because the scripture says that he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. So you, before you knew yourself, before your parents knew that you were on the way and had a twinkle in their eyes, before there was any idea that you would arrive on this planet, God knew you and chose you in Christ. And when it comes to thinking about our identity, I can think of nothing better than this, that I'm known by God from all eternity. That's my identity. I'm known by the living God. And that's one of the great spiritual blessings that are ours because we're in Christ. And then Paul adds to this, for he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, it's very easy to read that wrongly. It's very easy to read that as what we should do. If we get hold of the fact that God has chosen us in Christ, that he's always known us, that we belong to him because he has chosen us, even before he created anything at all, then it's very easy to see the second half of this verse as being the response that we make to that. So we're chosen by God before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. And we think that's what I must be. I must therefore live in response to God's choice of me as someone who is holy and blameless. And I don't want to dissuade you from doing that, but it's not what it means. Because it says here that because God has chosen us in Christ before the creation of the world, 
we are holy and blameless, we're in His sight. Because we're in Christ, chosen in Christ, belonging to Christ, joined to Christ, baptized into Christ, we're covered with the righteousness of Christ. So in God's sight, you and I are holy and blameless because he sees us like that. God sees us in his son. He sees us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this morning, this room is full of holy and blameless people. Now, you may not feel like that, but that is actually what you are in the sight of God because you're chosen in Christ and you're covered with his righteousness. And then Paul moves on, and he says, in love, and then we move into verse 5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through or in Jesus Christ. So again, please notice, this is one of our spiritual blessings in Christ. It's all about the fact that we're in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through or in Jesus Christ. Now, predestination is one of those words in the Bible that Christians get very nervous about. People don't like the word predestination. What does it really mean? Am I predestined or am I not predestined? And all these kind of questions come up. What I want you to notice here is Paul does not say, in order to worry you, he predestined you to the adoption of sons. He didn't say, in order to confuse you, he predestined you to the adoption of sonship, but rather in love, in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship. It simply means this, that God loves us so much that he has set us apart for himself to be the adopted children of God. I think I was well on in my Christian life before I really got to grips what it means to be adopted by God. Uh, it's a wonderful doctrine, if you can get hold of it, a wonderful truth that we are adopted by God because of his love for us into his family. Now, I often say this when I talk about adoption, and it's particularly relevant, I, I feel, to, to Gateway Church, because in this church I know that we have quite a number of adopted children. That's one of the great blessings and features of this church. And I really want to say something that I believe from the heart that there is something particularly significant about adopted children. You see, there are many parents here, and obviously a whole number of you as parents have had children in the normal way, uh, and uh, when you have a child, you're delighted with the birth of that child. But let me put it as basic as this. If you have a child in the normal way, you get what you get. <laughs> Good or bad, <laughs> you get what you get. You don't have any choice in the matter. You're delighted, of course you are. You're thankful. You're overflowing with joy. But you get what you get. Let me say, it's not like that with an adopted child. You don't just get what you get. Because with an adopted child, what you do is to say, I choose, or we choose, to have this child. And that makes an adopted child, in my mind, very special. You don't just get what you get. You deliberately say, this is our choice. We choose to have this child. And every adopted child has the choice of a parent put upon them. It makes them particularly special. And so, we need to understand that about God and his relationship to us. If I can put it like this, when we became Christians, God just 
didn't get what he got. He didn't say, oh, well, I've got that one now. You know. <laughs> God adopted us. He chose us. He said, this is the one I want. And all of us as believers here this morning are adopted children of the living God. Now, you can think this morning as you look at this passage, well, I do get a bit fed up as a lady uh, that, that, that keep reading verses like this, that uh, uh, we were chosen uh, for sonship. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship in Jesus Christ. And you may feel that kind of, it's an overemphasis on, on the male sex, you know, it's sonship. It doesn't even say, chose us into his family here, it says he's chosen for sonship. Now, let me just resolve this for you. If you go to the previous book, you may just have to turn over a page backwards if you've got your Bibles open, but in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, we read this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. But there's quite a complex Greek expression there, and in some translations, it tries to bring out the fuller meaning of what Paul is saying. And really what Paul is saying is that we might receive the full rights of adopted sons. That's what it really means. It's not just that we're adopted sons, but we might receive the full rights of adopted sons. And that refers to male or female. So it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman, if you're a child of God, what has happened is that you've been adopted into the family of God and you have, male or female, the full rights of sonship. And that means, if you go back into the culture of those days, if a Roman father adopted a son, he would give him full rights, which would include inheritance and access. And that runs through into the Christian life that as the adopted children of God, male or female, we have the full rights of uh, adoption and of sonship, meaning uh, that we have access and inheritance. Now, when it comes to inheritance, we read in 1 Peter that there is an inheritance laid up for us in the heavenly realm, which is safeguarded by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just uh, bring to you the whole matter of access, because this is so very important. I don't think we sometimes realize the wonder of it. Supposing I wanted to go and see the king and ask him to grant me a favor. What would I do? Well, I would go down to Bournemouth Station, <coughs> but only for another 10 days, because in 10 days we move to Poole. But I, at the moment, would go to <laughs> Bournemouth Station, and I get on the train and I go up to Waterloo Station. <coughs> and at Waterloo Station, I get out and change across to the tube trains, and I get on a tube, and I go to Victoria Station on the tube. I get out of the tube. I walk down through Victoria, down to the area that Matthew and Grace are going this afternoon, down through to Westminster, and I come to Buckingham Palace. So the flag is flying, Royal Standard, we know the king's there. So I go up to the gates of Buckingham Palace, and there's a soldier on guard there, and I say to him, please, sir, uh, I would like to ask the king to grant me a favor. Could I go and see him? And he says, sure, John Hosier. So he, he, opens, <laughs> he opens the gates, and I go through, and I cross the, the great square at Buckingham Palace, and I come to uh, a, a, a door, and there's a policeman on this door, and he's an armed policeman in Buckingham Palace. So again, I'm very polite. Please, sir, uh, my name's John Hosier. Uh, uh, I was a great admirer of the Queen all her life, and uh, I'd like now to ask uh, the King a favour. So he says, OK, and he opens the door, and I go into Buckingham Palace. 
And so now I'm walking down the corridor in Buckingham Palace, and I open the doors, and I can't see, and then I open the door, and there is the king, and he's preparing for the coronation. So he's wearing a royal robe, and he's got a crown on his head, and I go up to him and say, King Charles, I was a great admirer of your mother, but now I've come to ask you as my king to grant me a request. Let me tell you this, not a chance. I mean, with all the strikes that are going on, I wouldn't even get out of Bournemouth Station. <laughs> but I'll tell you something else, my friends. You have access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And at any time, at any moment, at any place, and at any time of the day, you can go before that King and ask him to grant you your request. We have been adopted into the family of God, male and female, with the full rights of sonship. Paul goes on and he says, this is in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, uh, don't overlook that because uh, you can let that phrase slip by to the praise of his glorious grace. In fact, Paul uses it three times in the opening verses of Ephesians 1. You'll find it uh, again in verse 12 that we might be for the praise of his glory. You'll find it again in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Here it's the praise of his glorious grace. So I'll tell you what this verse is about, or this expression is about. It means that in Christ we have a purpose to our lives. I was listening to a radio program, I would think decades ago now, but it's stuck in my mind, and a, a philosopher was being interviewed by uh, a lady interviewer, and she was speaking to this philosopher and said to him, look, you're a clever man, you think about the big questions of life and death, let me ask you this, what is the purpose of life? And the philosopher replied to her, the purpose of life is to discover the purpose of life. Now, isn't that a philosopher? I mean, it's just classic, isn't it? What's the purpose of life? To discover the purpose of life. Let me tell you, in Christ, we discover the purpose of life, which is to live to the praise of his glory. Paul says it three times in Ephesians chapter 1. That's why we're here. Put it in other terms, we're here to live to please him. It means that you and I need never be bored, never without meaning, never without significance or purpose. That in who we are and in what we do, we can do everything we do to the to please the living Christ. So if you're in a job, you can do it as unto Jesus. If you're looking for a job, you can do that as unto Jesus. If you're looking after family at home, you can do that unto Jesus. If you're retired, you can live your life in such a way as you seek to please Jesus. We've always got a purpose to our lives, which is to live to the praise of his glorious, uh, glorious grace, to please Jesus. In my pastoral experience, I've so many times had conversations when somebody came to see me and they said, John, what do you think, you know, God would have me do? What's, what's the purpose of my life? What God, would God want me to do? So I always have said, live to the praise of God's glory. And I explain a bit the kind of thing I've just said to you. Live to please Christ. And then very often what they'd say to me was this. Yes, but what do you think God really wants me to do? <laughs> and I have a killer verse. Right, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Paul says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What does God really want you to do? It's not necessarily to, to join the Hawaiian beach mission. It is actually to live to the praise of his glory, and it includes this, rejoice all the time, pray all the time, and give thanks all the time. For that's God's will for you 
in Christ Jesus. There's always a purpose to our life in Christ. We go on and see that uh, in Him, in Christ, it's all about being in Christ. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. The word redemption is a word that will be familiar to Paul's readers at the time. It can also be understood as ransom. A redemption price is a ransom price. And this was known about in the ancient world because many people were slaves And being enslaved meant that there was a route out for some. And the route out for some was that a a ransom price, a redemption price could be paid. Somebody would pay for you, perhaps a relative. And uh, you've been enslaved, but maybe in a time of war, maybe because of debt, you were in slavery, but you have a relative. And this relative decides to buy you out of slavery into freedom. And so they paid the redemption or the ransom price. And you come out of slavery and into freedom. Now, the reality is this, that all of us were once enslaved. In fact, we were so enslaved, we might not even have realized it. And I think this whole idea of being held captive or enslaved, and then a ransom price being paid, is something that we're familiar with even now. Uh, I think of stories in recent years of uh, ships that have been hijacked or pirated Uh, on the high seas and uh, people have been put into captivity and a ransom price has been demanded. You know, you pay up and we'll let this person go. Even between Russia and Ukraine, that is taking place even now. So Ukraine holds Russian prisoners of war and Russia wants its prisoners of war back. They're held in captivity. How is Russia going to get its prisoners of war back to Russia? The answer is they have to pay a ransom. What's the ransom? Probably Ukrainian prisoners that are held by Russia. And so a price is paid, and then those that are enslaved are able to go back uh, uh, to their own country. My friends, we need to understand this, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved, we were in captivity, we were in darkness, we were in the realm of death. And uh, uh, what's going to happen to us? And just think of it like this, that you're walking down the street in Poole, and suddenly, as you walk down the street, there's a Mercedes-Benz that drives up, and uh, a door opens, and uh, somebody drags you, and you're pushed inside, and the windows are darkened, and they put a blindfold around your eyes, and then they drive you away. And after you've gone a long way, and you haven't got a clue where you are, they pull you out, and they take you into a house, and they throw you into the basement, and said, you're staying there, and said, your relatives pray, uh, pay for you. You've got to be ransomed if you're going to get out of this place. Somebody's got to pay up for you. And you're in there, in captivity, and the doors are locked, and you don't know what's going to happen. Are you going to die? Are you going to be tortured? Will you ever see your family or your friends again? You're in total fear because of that captivity. And then one day, the door flies open, and the guy says, okay, you can go. They paid up. You get out. And you go out of that house, and you exult in the freedom and the liberty that is now yours. My friends, we were all held in captivity and death and slavery to sin, and one day we heard that there's a ransom price, which is the blood of Jesus. And when the blood of Jesus was preached to us and understood by us, when we saw that our sins had been paid for, we came out of slavery to sin and into the everlasting freedom of the kingdom of God. And we were sprung out of that slavery, redeemed by His blood. And not only that, because we're in Christ, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Now, uh, this is something, again, that uh, Christians, can I find, get very confused about. In what sense are our sins forgiven? 
I think if we become Christians, we all understand that our past sins have been forgiven. We repent of our sin, we become Christian, our sins are forgiven. But what about the sins that we, conf- we commit as Christians? How, how, how are those dealt with? And so, again, we, we feel we've got to confess our sins and ask for forgiveness, but, you know, how does it quite work? And I want to say to you this morning that because of Colossians 2.20, as well as other verses, there's a clear statement in the New Testament that Christ forgave us all our sins, all our sins. And if Christ has forgiven us all our sins, that's sins in the past, sins in the present, and sins in the future. All our sins does not mean all the sins in the past, most of the sins in the present, and a few more in the future, perhaps. It's all our sins. Now, you might say, well, that's a highly dangerous doctrine. Because if you say all our sins, even present and future, are forgiven, isn't that an invitation to sin? I don't think it works like that. If you understand that Christ forgives your sin, I think you find there's an inner motivation not to sin. You don't want to sin because Christ is the great forgiver. But then, why is it that we seem, as Christians, still to have to ask forgiveness for our sins? It says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's speaking there to Christians. So why, if all our sins are forgiven, do we still have to keep asking for forgiveness for our sins? Now, what we need to understand is this. There is all the difference between a legal position and a living relationship. And uh, you need to get hold of this to understand the truth here. The fact is, all our sins are forgiven. That is our legal position. In Christ, no sin will count against us. It's all covered by his blood. That's our legal status. But we don't just live by legal status. We want to live by uh, an experiential understanding and experience of God himself, have a living relationship with God. And that's what gets clouded when we sin as Christians. We still are in the legal position of our sins forgiven, but our relationship with God is clouded. Let me put it to you again by a a way of an illustration. If you're married and living through this winter, you will know absolutely what I mean when I say you are probably engaged in the thermostatic wars. (laughs) Now, thermostatic wars is when you have a thermostat Uh, for the radiators on your wall. And let's just say in my house, that to be comfortable in the whole house, it has to be at 20 degrees, okay? It's comfortable. Now, there is an inclination for warfare here because usually it goes like this. Usually, as far as the wife is concerned, that that thermostat needs to go up, okay? There's an inclination to put it up. But as far as the husband is concerned, there's an inclination for it to go down, right? Put it down. And so, you know, here I am, and the the comfortable temperature is 20 degrees, but I'm thinking, oh, the cost of living and the price of fuel, I'm going to, I think we could cope at 18, so I knock it down to 18 degrees. Now, my wife is sitting there in the evening, and she says, oh, it's cold in here. I say, I think it's all right. No, she says, free. She says, "Uh, have have you turned that thermostat down? Now, I want to make it clear, this never happens, of course. This is just... (laughs) Well, I said, maybe a bit. She says, you've turned it down, haven't you? What's it at? So I, I said, well, I think it's at 18. 18 degrees? No wonder I'm freezing. Now, at that point, there was a deep freeze in the relationship. <laughs> but legally, believe it or not, we're still married. 
So nearly 55 years ago, can you believe this, at North Finchley Baptist Church, Sue and I said to one another, we will until death do us part or Jesus comes again, and that still remains. And we have a wedding certificate. Everybody knows we're married. Even our children know we're married. All right, everybody. Everybody knows we're married. But actually, even though you are legally married, what you're meant to do is to live up to it. And what you can do in a marriage is actually lose the living relationship within that marriage. So what am I going to do? Right, with legally married. Well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm sorry, love. I, I shouldn't have done that. So we'll get it up to at least 19.5. <laughs> and harmony and warmth is restored in a relationship. Now, this is how it is with God. All right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. All your sins are covered. It's all forgiven. But the Christian life isn't just legal. It's a living relationship. And therefore, if we sin, we need to confess our sins, turn from our sins, ask God for his forgiveness and for his cleansing so we can be renewed in that relationship. Let's press on. Just another couple of things we need to look at here. So we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Oh, this is a wonderful verse. The riches of God's grace that is lavished on us who are in Christ. I love the word lavish. Some words are just nice to say, lavish. If you ever watch Miranda, she liked the word plunge. Right? That's a good word. I used to travel to India quite a lot. And for the Indians here, they'll probably understand this, that uh, when I was in India, I just loved the, the name of the state, which is Karnataka. It's just a lovely word to say, Karnataka. And so I used to, whether I was going to Karnataka or not, uh, I would say Karnataka. I just love saying the word. Now, it's the same with, with lavish. It's just a wonderful word. So in Christ, we find that uh, we are lavished with the riches of God's grace. How can I put that to you? I want you to imagine it's summertime, and like me, that you look very fond of strawberries and cream in the summer, okay? So you've got the strawberries and you need the cream. Now, there's a husband and wife dynamic with cream as well as fuel. <laughs> and the, the, the husband and wife dynamic is this, that uh, a wife buys cream to decorate the fridge, whereas the husband is on a mission to liberate the cream from the fridge. <laughs> And so, you, you, you have the strawberries, and you open the fridge, and the wife says, what are you doing? I'm getting the cream out of the fridge. Why? Well, I thought it was meant to be used. <laughs> Apparently, it's meant to decorate the fridge, but no, no. Anyway, you get, you get the cream out of the fridge. Now, you know you can get these tins of cream that uh, you can press the button. And you go, Psh, all right, okay, so you get the cream, you go, Psh. hey, it's lavish, folks, Psh, it's summer, it's strawberries, nobody's looking, <laughs> I'll tell you this, the God of the heavenly realms has got a huge, great can, <laughs> and it's labeled grace, and God's got his finger on the button, and he's going, Shh. And what you are in receipt of is the lavish grace of God. In Christ, God saved you. In Christ, God keeps you. In Christ, you will enter glory. You are lavished with the grace of God.
Now, notice one more thing in this passage, and that's in verses 9 and 10, uh, which I've got to work through just a little carefully because it's a long sentence, okay? So just go through this with me. God made known to us, that's those of us in Christ, the mystery of His will. And so, the mystery in the New Testament is something previously hidden, but which is now revealed and made clear. So, God has made known to us in Christ something previously hidden, but it's now revealed, which is according to His pleasure and His purpose, notice this, in Christ. So, get this. So, God has revealed to you and to me who are in Christ His purpose, which was not previously known, which He's going to work through in Christ. And that means that we're included because we're in Christ. Which is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. In other words, what God is going to do in and through Christ at the end of history. Which is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What this verse is telling us is that you and I who are in Christ know how the world is going to end. And is, is it going to end with the pandemic? Is it going to end with a nuclear war? Is it going to end in flood or fire? How is the world going to end? Well, the details might be debated, but there's revelation to you and I here of what is going to happen at the end of history, that God's purpose, previously hidden but now made clear to us who are in Christ, it's according to His grace and pleasure. It's going to be worked out through the purpose and work of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen at the end of history is this. And let me change the wording here slightly because that's not a brilliant translation at this point. But what God is going to do in a rather complex Greek word is to bring all creation, the created heavens and the earth, into reconciliation with God and into unity of purpose and plan in a new heavens and a new earth under the headship of Jesus Christ. And the power of the blood, which is strong enough to deliver you from sin, is finally strong enough to deliver a fallen creation from frustration and decay. And at the end of history, whatever the precise details are of how it happens, what finally will conclude is this, that God's purpose to reconcile the whole created universe to himself so that everything that is now dead throughout the universe will live and everything that is sinful and out of kilter in this earth will be burnt up and taken away, that there will be a brand renewed creation in which we will live in renewed bodies forever and ever because that's God's final purpose and what he will work out through his son's work upon the cross and in which you and I, because we are in Christ, will all be involved. I tell you, it's wonderful to be a Christian. It's wonderful to be in Christ. We're living in serious days, my friends. This is not the day for casual church going. You need to be here, in this oasis, as the world shakes, and goodness knows what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months. We're living in a terrifying world, and we're living in a confusing world where we need clarity, and you need the Word of God week by week to feed your, feed your soul and build you up. Let's stand up. Let's make a positive confession. Okay, say this after me. Just repeat after me. That's right. Just repeat after me. I am in Christ. 
I am chosen in Christ. I am holy and blameless. I am an adopted child of God. I have a purpose to my life. I am redeemed through Christ's blood. All my sins are forgiven. I receive the lavish grace of God. I know how this world is going to end. I thank you, Lord, that we who are in Christ are in such a privileged position, Lord. We don't take it lightly to gather here on a Sunday morning. Thank you, you're at work around the world, beginning to stir in American universities and to uh, draw people to the faith in Iran in great numbers and to do a secret work in China and to spread the gospel through the Punjab in India and all these things that we're happening at the present time in the midst of a world that is flooded and on fire and threatened with war and pandemic and we don't know what's going to happen but Lord we do know what's going to happen because we're in Christ and we know that he has a glorious ultimate purpose to reconcile all things together under the headship of his son we thank you so much for this glorious truth hallelujah Hallelujah.